Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. I'm Tristan Johnson. I've said that many, many times. I am here tonight with our host. Uh, second podcast, first one was 20 minutes ago. Yeah. Uh, this is Emma Bridgewater. She's new to the show. Uh, hello, everybody. And we'll be interviewing another new GradCast member who has yet to host a new episode, but she will soon. We are here with Susan Anthony, but not the Susan Anthony you're thinking of. Um who is probably dead. Yeah, yes, very, very dead. Very dead. <laughs> so, I'm amazing. I, I could never live up to that, but I'm still dead. So even though you didn't uh, help bring suffrage to women, what did you do? <laughs> what <did> you do? <laughs> <laughs> Again, a lot to no live pressure, up to. No pressure. Yeah, a lot to live up to. Well, I, um, in this incarnation, if you will, of Susan Anthony, I'm actually a PhD student here at Western. Um, and my second year now um, and I study well spiders in the cold I'm in the Sinclair lab in uh, biology and I like to yeah what do spiders do in the cold and uh, you did say that you uh, you had a really fun term for you an arachnologist uh, arachnologist yes arachnologist yes possibly yes, the coolest word. name definitely yeah. way better than historian <laughs> uh, I don't even have a name so count yourself lucky so, spiders. Yes. Typically not known for enjoying the cold. How well, do they adapt? <laughs> well, that's the crazy thing is they're not. It's not that they're not known. It's that we just don't see them, right? I mean, who wants to do field work in the winter, especially up north, right? Mm-hmm. No one. That most of our field work, actually, if you talk to scientists, they know a lot about what goes on in the summer. You know, that's mating season. They're very, there are a lot of animals out there, easy to collect, et cetera, and easy to watch. You know, it's, again, not cold. But what goes on when the temperatures fall below zero, when, you know, water turns to ice, we don't want to be out there either. So we kind of keep staying in our labs through the winter. And a lot of animals stay active at temperatures you would not believe. Some animals, they can stay active to negative 20, negative 30. Some of them don't even freeze to negative 80 to some cases, extremophiles, like negative 200. Are we counting uh, spiders in this category of negative 200? No, no. Okay. Those are those are special ones. But um, yeah, even but even uh, negative 20, negative 30, they've actually been, they've encountered spiders that can survive, or I'm sorry, won't freeze until those temperatures. Because yeah. like, I know there's some worms that even if you brought them into above zero, they like melt or something <laughs> weird like that. Uh, so... Uh, the the first question I would think like the obvious thing would be do the, is it hibernation that they do or is it something else? Well, hibernation is sort of the term often used for mammals, so it's one we're more familiar with. We call it diapause when we're talking about insects. And yes, some spiders actually do go through kind of huddle down, you know, hunker down as it were, and stay immobile for the winter. And those ones are interesting, but um, I'm more interested in the ones that don't huddle down, don't hibernate, the ones that actually stay walking. Because what you may know about temperatures is they have a great effect on not just you know freezing and cooling but also just activity level Mm -hmm. i mean we're endotherms so we can continue to keep our activity level pretty the same throughout Mm -hmm. our our comfortable zone but with um ectotherms you know the ones that do not regulate come cold-blooded but i mean if it's warm out they're warm-blooded at that point right so they don't 
they don't regulate their own temperature. They are at the whim of the environment, the ambient temperature. So when the ambient temperature is low, they can't heat themselves up to a good temperature. So they actually are a lot slower and sluggish. My analogy, I was thinking about this other day, I was pulled up my phone when I was, you know, walking outside and it walked and had been outside for a bit and it worked so much slower. Did you ever notice that your phone just works slower when it's cold? Some electronics work slower when they're yep. cold. Yeah. Mm. That I, I think of that as the analogy is the animals work slower at lower temperatures. And all right, so because that adds with the other things, they're predators. Yes. So how do you catch things when you're cold? Uh, do they have webs or like what's yeah, going on? Yeah, some of them actually build webs even in, in snow prints. So they actually wait for things that are, you know, in diapause or a smaller microarthropods to kind of drift in to their netting. Um, alternatively, some of them actually, they may be slow, but so are their prey. So it's almost like a really slow motion cat <laughs> mouse chase. So they actually prefer live and walking prey because that's usually what they can see better and feel. They, they feel for live things. So they actually will eat other active things. And surprisingly, they become prey for active winter animals like voles and birds and such. So they're actually really integral to this ecosystem. They're a huge stepping stone uh, to keep migratory birds safe, wintering birds. And um, a lot of the whole ecosystem the, in the subnivian ecosystem, and subnivian is one of my favorite words. That's why I threw it out there. It means underneath the snow. Yeah. So there's t tunnels. There's all stuff going on in a layer underneath the snow and they get buffered from the extreme winter temperatures by that snow layer. So location wise, this is like the Arctic almost here, Arctic all over. But again, not people, not many people have actually done the studies up in the Arctic and I'm hoping to at some point they have been found, um, you know, spiders huddling in pine cones and things and uh, hibernating in those areas. But yeah, that's what I'm hoping to do in coming up is actually kind of, quantifying what is active, what is wandering in the winter. It's been done in the 70s, but it's almost like it's been ignored. And right now we're seeing huge changes in winter. I mean, especially in northern latitudes, we are having sort of being disproportionately affected by climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, we see melting of sea ice, permafrost melting. And one of the crazier things I, I mentioned that snow offers some kind of buffering to extreme temperatures. Well, what happens if precipitation changes, if it's not cold enough for the snow really to accumulate? Whole ecosystems could crash. It's crazy. It's like, the, it's, like uh, it's almost kind of like building an igloo, like how igloos yeah. keep you warm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So as far as, okay, like correct me whenever I'm wrong on the science or something. So <laughs> probably like most animals, spiders are probably mostly water as well. Yeah. And below zero like um how do they keep themselves like i know some animals do like they have like natural like um antifreeze in their blood or something like that but like how do spiders just keep from like crystallization just killing them well yeah and i've uh, on that same line i was always under the impression that spiders use like a hydraulic system in their legs to be able to move which requires like moving fluid so absolutely it's like you guys I've read my proposal. It's quite impressive. Um, this is a great conversation because, yes, they move by hydraulic pressure. They do have fluid that goes through their body there. It's called hemolymph in insects and spiders. Um, and it's kind of free-floating. It's not in tubes like it is with us. So it's free-floating through their body. And, yes, they extend their legs by pushing fluid out to their legs, but they retract by muscular action. 
And yes, water freezes at zero, but this is hemolymph. So it may be mostly water, but there's other compounds in it that actually act as antifreeze agents. And these are one thing that uh, our lab does quantify is the accumulation of these compounds. So some of them are can be like sugars. Glycerol is very uh, well known one that's found even in those uh, wood frogs that freeze. Mm -hmm. um, and other ones that we look at are um, sort of antifree antifreeze proteins. And also there's other things you can do to prevent freezing, which is just not coming in contact with ice. Because uh, fluids, even water, can actually go below zero, like well below zero. There's some great YouTube out there. YouTube's a great source yeah. for supercooling. That's the term it's used, and we throw it around a lot. Supercooling fluids is to cool them below their freezing temperature. And they sometimes just require one little nucleation device, some kind of little speck of dust or something to adhere to. And then once a crystal starts forming, it just spreads. So... Hopefully you've never seen like a spider where you like poke it with a pin and all of a sudden just like. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, that would be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say. I was going to say that's, that would be cool, but that's also um, from what I've learned from my research and what I've experienced with the spiders I've dealt with, none of them could survive that. Um, although there are a lot of animals that survive freezing, like being frozen solid and thaw out and walk around afterwards. So, so what are the, what are the spiders' favorite survival mechanisms or do they have several temperature wise or like um so like what's your what's a spider's favorite way like those are all the ways that animals keep themselves oh freezing. right what's a spider's favorite well spiders they are um really not enough people have looked at it that's really why i'm there is um a couple people have looked at some cryoprotectant molecules like glycerol and other uh, alcohols and sugars and as you know putting alcohol in a fluid makes it freezing temperature a lot lower. So there's actually um, some evidence that they they produce these compounds in preparation for winter. So they freeze at higher temperature in the summer mm -hmm. than in the winter. But during the fall, during the preparation time for winter, they actually start accumulating these. But this is, you know, one study in 1973. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a very interesting uh, of me. They are not what's termed freeze tolerant, which means they do not tolerate freezing. Um, they are, uh, some of them are freeze avoidant, which means they can survive up until they freeze. And then there's those that are, um, that are chill susceptible, which means they die from tem low temperatures before they even freeze. So, so, so could it be that maybe like uh, it's a life cycle thing? So like maybe all they, they don't need to survive the winter. They just need to lay eggs before, before winter. That's a total, <laughs> Yeah, that's a complete other strategy that a lot of animals do do is they lay eggs and the eggs can overwinter and then they hatch when everything is plentiful in the spring. But what we're finding for um, northern species, especially because shorter seasons, uh, especially seasons where other food is more plentiful, um, they actually live lives of oh, like over a decade for a single spider. So they're definitely multi-year uh, multi wow. species up there. So we know that almost every life stage has to deal mm -hmm. with winter. Yeah, and uh, before we get too far away from this, Perfect. you mentioned something about alcohol in the blood. <laughs> and um, uh, just to age myself, I do recall a film from the Film Board of Canada about oh. alcohol spiders. Um, alcohol spiders being spiders? <laughs> spiders being exposed to alcohol and cocaine, a bunch of other drugs too. Oh, that uh, is a famous study. So yes, a lot of <laughs> research has been 
I've been very interested in the way spiders build webs under certain conditions, <laughs> alcohol, caffeine, cocaine, marijuana. Yeah, there's even spoof videos of it now. I'm curious as to how you write this uh, study Wait, proposal real? on a grant. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, um, that's what I've, a lot of what we do as grad students, of course, is writing for grant applications. And a lot of people think that, you know, always say to me, well, how does this benefit people? And it's like, well, um, everything is we're, we're all connected in this world we have to keep our ecology i mean if you like watching birds fly if you want the birds to come to your yard they're gonna have to survive in the winter they're gonna have to eat something spiders keep town uh insects and i don't know if, if anyone's been up north in the summer the insects are insane there it's bug jackets and gloves just to go outside of your tent um and really we are already seeing an effect of climate change on um, spider populations in Greenland, which is my next foray. Um, they've been doing long-term biotic and climatic uh, um, measurements of the Greenland area through um, uh, Denmark, of course. And they're noticing a shift in what's called phenology, which is sort of more like the life stages. And we're finding the spiders are emerging earlier and they're coming out to be sort of different size than they should be. The females are much bigger than the males when they should be just a little bit bigger. And mm -hmm. that's also, that's troubling because then you deal, have to deal with whether or not they recognize each other and what, whether or not they'll meet. Mm -hmm. So writing the grant, I really push for the fact that this is unknown, but like essential information to predict the effects of climate change on Arctic and, well, really any... Um, Microsoft communities. Especially because uh, the harsher the climate, the smaller the natural biodiversity. And so even uh, small changes can go a bigger way, right? Like, um, yeah. uh, you know, if, if one species goes extinct in the Arctic, it's a way bigger deal than if one species goes extinct in the Amazon, for example. Uh, yeah, that's part of the trend, yeah. Okay. Uh, so you also work in a lab with a bunch of people working on non spiders. Yes, I'm, so, I'm the weird one in the lab, actually. So, so tell us a bit about this lab and like what um, does it benefit you to like have that I wouldn't say interdisciplinary but like that uh, intersubject oh my I think someone just took a book from the library uh, keep that in <laughs> so would you say that like uh, you benefit from the multi-species approach or do you think that I like an alternate universe where you were just in a spider lab with spider people and working on spiders would be like is what's the difference between the two i guess well um one thing that i appreciate from being at a university that's big enough is that you can talk to people of many different systems and it's not just insects i think sometimes we deal with snails and i'm also in an office with people who do with plants and uh, mammals and all sort of thermal biology and such but it is never a bad thing to have more people doing different things I mean, it's useful because we use similar methods. So at least we get, you know, help. Like this machine isn't working. What's going on with it? Which pretty daily basis going on in her lab. But it also, it, it keeps you sticking to what is known and not, and prevents you from kind of going off on a tangent as to, well, that's just what everyone thinks, right? Because you'll say something about spiders and you'll have someone say, but, do they really do that? And I feel like, 
does that do that they really do that and i'll look it up and i'll be like okay yeah yeah that really happened but it, it keeps you on your toes i think and you never i mean any life form and biology really can come down to similar things in the end i mean we are cells we have enzymes and proteins we have all these things in common that because I mean, because it happens in one doesn't mean it happens in another, but it's also something worth looking for. And ideas are our ideas. You never know where they're going to come from. And I personally, I love the collaborative work environment. Okay. And um, I'm also interested, like, what is the life of a field biologist? Like when you're out in the field, you mentioned bug suits. and stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, So what, what's a day like when you're out doing stuff? Like, are you just collecting stuff or are you watching or? Um. It's a bit of both. It depends on how tricky your actual work is. Um, I've been lucky in this PhD that my field work has been fairly successful. It is not difficult to find spiders in the Arctic. Uh, everyone said, how did you manage to collect so many? I got about 600 when I was up there. Um, really, you just walk and scoop. Like We just had little cups, little Dixie cups with lids, and we just scooped, put in a bag, scooped, put in a bag. and. I mean, we did it over the course of a couple of weeks, but no more than a couple hours a day. Um, so we were lucky for that. We were also up there with other researchers and we helped them out. They helped us out. So that's the other thing about field biologists is it's good to go in a group because um, well, safety for one and for two, again, the collaborative, the discussions, those are essential. Um, it depends on the source of field work. Some people do field work out of field stations, which is probably the I would say more luxurious, but you can set up laboratories there. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> so there's always that benefit that you don't have to bring too much with you. Um, I was mostly collection field work based, um, and we were camping and driving up um, the Dempster Highway up to the past the Arctic Circle. And yeah, I mean, you can't help that when you're out there though you get immersed in an environment with so much going on and you forget about that when you're in the lab back in the city you forget to take the time and focus on what is you know i know how you feel about the scientific method but <laughs> really the first step that people always forget is the observation part what i'm doing is physiology is ecology but really down to it sometimes a lot of science is natural history. It's how things work, how things do things. And we don't know a smidgen of what's going on in our world. We have to put ourselves out there and be very uncomfortable doing it. And again, the bug suits were a perfect <laughs> example of that. But you see things in where they're supposed to be and you, you can't help but come up with so many questions. I think field work is something that is being taken out of science. It's expensive. It's hard to do, but it's it's so essential. And so what was it like in the Arctic, just like as a person being that far north? Like, I, I've, I've never been there, so I have to know. Like, Oh, you should go. It's fantastic. I don't know. Yeah. The whole bug suits. It wasn't actually. It was only at the campgrounds that were that bad. Out on the tundra, mm -hmm. there was great winds and such. Um, 24-hour sunlight, which, because we went in the summer, of course, <laughs> uh, which was brilliant because you had more time to kind of work at what you're doing, your, your science, but also um, 
I, I, I have been living for a while previous to London in an area where you could go off and no one would find you for days. Like that was what my norm. And it was nice to go back to that where you go up and you climb for a couple hours up a ridge and you could just see these amazing, this amazing tundra landscape. You always had your bear spray on you just in case. Um, you always have binoculars on you because you never know what you're going to see. And the only sense that there are humans on the planet is one road. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's called the Dempster Highway. And you never want to stray too far from it because that's where your car is. But um, everything else is just as it should be. And it's there that you can explore. There's no trails. There's no go here, don't go here. It's you can go explore up there. And we got really too close to bears, um, you know, the charismatic megafauna of the north. And, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> we were able to luckily um, become guests at a, sort of a nature park interpretive center. And we gave a talk about the fauna that you don't think about uh, up north. And it's interesting to see people go, oh, I had no idea these were up here and they were there. Like the people were actually in the Arctic looking at and just mm -hmm. missed it. And how they said, like, they would say that they went out and looked and saw these spiders and they actually wanted to ask what they were. It was, or not spiders, but bugs and things. And there's so much out there. A new species to your name yet? <laughs> just started. Um, <laughs> not, no. Got any, no. got any names on the back of your head for when you, when you get one? Oh, um, I promised my great uncle who uh, passed away a couple years ago now. He was, you you probably would have loved him. He's a starch, like staunch union organizer in the southern <laughs> states in the 50s, you know, um, not anti-power, but, you know, don't take advantage of people. Sit-ins to give, um, allow people of all races to be able to buy coffee at a coffee shop. That's who he was. And I promised him that I would name a species after him. So. Nice. So what would it be called? Uh, it depends on the genus because you have to name things if it's similarly related to something. And I'm hoping it's a Pardosa because they're, they're my favorite genus of wolf spiders. I've <laughs> mostly worked on Pardosa species. Um, so Pardosa polya. The Paul recluse. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, Susan Anthony, thank you so much for coming out, and we'll see you again because you'll be hosting an episode probably in the near future. So. Uh, my voice will sound a little different next week, but it will be me. Alrighty. Thank you, everybody. Awesome. Take care. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.